Um, So we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men and with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, 
Keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. We're going to continue with Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can meet together as your children, as a family, your family. And Lord, we pray that as we listen to you, our Father, that we would do as all good children do, that we might listen to you and obey. Amen. Well, tonight I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is that this is the first sermon in all of 2 Samuel where nobody dies. No one's getting stabbed tonight. Isn't that kind of good news? Can't you just kind of relax knowing that that's what's going on? Bad news, it's the only sermon in all of 2 Samuel where no one dies. But actually, I can almost kind of picture today in my mind, uh, David, King David, uh, relaxing on the balcony of his brand new luxurious palace. He's just enjoyed a good meal. And now he's sitting up there, he's got a nice glass of cognac in one hand, maybe a cigar in the other, and he's just kind of sitting there looking out over Jerusalem, looking out over his city enjoying the serenity. He is at peace. God has given him rest from all his enemies. Life is good for David. And enjoying all of this with him is another man, Nathan the prophet. We haven't met Nathan before, but I think it's pretty clear from the chapter that he and Nathan are good friends. And as David and Nathan look out over Jerusalem, David catches a glimpse of something that feels out of place. Amongst all the magnificent buildings that he sees, many of which he's built, there is a tent, a big tent. And it's a tent that's looking a little bit threadbare and worn, which is understandable. It's actually hundreds of years old. It dates back to the time of the Exodus. But this tent is of immense significance to David and indeed to all Israel. For this tent is the tabernacle. This is the place where God meets with and lives with his people. 
And inside the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, And the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God's throne. Uh, The whole universe of God's power and glory rests just above the cherubim of the Ark, inside this tent. But seeing the tent bothers David. It's not the, the presence of the tent itself, because after all, David actually bought the ark and the tabernacle into the city of Jerusalem just last week, as Roger taught to us. But David looks around at his palace. And he looks around at his beautiful, wonderful palace with its very expensive wood paneling. That was a gift from Hiram, king of Tyre. And seeing he's got indoor wood panelling, I imagine that the rest also had a very 70s decor to it. So I'm thinking shag pile carpeting and sunken conversation pits and all the kind of rest. A little bit kind of like my parents' old kitchen, to tell you the truth. But but David thinks to himself, look, here I am living like a king while the God who gave it all to me lives in a tent. That's just not right, is it? That's just not the way that it should be. And David, he remembers his Bible too. His Bible opened by his bedside, open to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And the promise that God had made that when God gave Israel peace from all their enemies and established them in the land that he had promised them, then God would name the one true place of worship. God would name the place where his house, his temple, his palace ought to be built. And David wonders, I think that time might be now. I think I might be the one to to build God's temple. I think it might be the the time to build it. I think it's time for the church building project. You know, he's thinking about uh, speaking with the wardens and talking to the parish council and, and, you know, how to get this past council. No, he wasn't really worried about that. He was the king. He doesn't have to get anything past local council. But Nathan looks at his friend, uh, the prophet Nathan, and, uh, you know, he looks at this massively successful king and he, and he hears what he's saying in verse 2. He hears his, his dreams of building God a, a place. And Nathan sees just what a patient and godly man David has been. The one who refused to take any military action in order to secure the throne. But instead waited for God's invisible and yet unmistakable hand to make him king. And he even considers what a noble thing it is that David desires to do. And Nathan says in verse 3, he says, yes, go for it. This is so right. You should absolutely do this. And David says, yes, I'm going to do this. And they, they talk about it long into the night. Eventually, Nathan goes off to bed. And there, Nathan has a dream. Or he has something. But we're told in verse 4 that the word of God comes to Nathan the prophet. This in itself is actually a little bit interesting uh, because despite how close David and God are, God never speaks to David directly, always through an intermediary, always through a prophet. But God speaks to Nathan a very clear message that he then gives to David. And surprisingly, the answer is no. No, you will not build me a house. No, you will not build me a temple. And it's quite a jarring moment, actually. We are all expecting God to say yes. Uh, The whole story feels like it's been heading towards a yes. 
And Nathan, even Nathan the prophet thought the answer was going to be yes. But the answer is no. No, you will not build me a house, says God. And in fact, I'm going to build you a house, says God. No, you will not build me a house, meaning you will not build me a temple. That honor will go to your son, says God. But I am going to build you a house. I'm going to build you the house of David, a a great dynasty, a great family. A family that is going to last forever. And it turns out that our God has a bit of a sense of humor. Because the very heart of this passage is a pun. A play on the word of what the word house can mean. And I think that's fantastic that God has a sense of humor like that. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. I don't want to talk to you about the pun. I want to talk to you instead about uh, these promises that God makes to David in this passage. So I've got three things that I want to talk to you about tonight. If you're the type of person who likes to take notes. I want to talk to you about why God says no. Then I want to talk to you about what God says yes to. And then I just want to finish by talking about how David responds to God's no and to God's yes. And please do keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 7 and keep a finger in there because we'll keep coming back to it. So firstly then, why does God say no? Well, God says no because of two principles in particular. The incarnational principle and the grace principle. That's what I call them. The incarnational principle is in verses 6 and 7. God says, I have lived in a tent because my people have lived in a tent. I have traveled and wandered for so long because my people have traveled and wandered for so long. I love my people. I experience what my people experience. And so if they are poor, I am poor. If they are suffering, I am suffering. If they move, I move. God, our God, is a a down-to-earth kind of God, quite literally. He lives with his people. He's not like a, a missionary in Africa who might live amongst some of the poorest people on the planet and yet still drives a brand new Land Cruiser and gives his kids PS5s for Christmas. That Our God is not like that. God lives as his people lives. Now David had begun the process of bringing peace and security to God's people. David was at peace, that's what it says in verse 1. But not all of God's people are at peace. In verse 11, God puts peace and security for all of Israel as something that's still yet to be achieved, something that's still in the future. And in fact, as we keep going in the book of 2 Samuel, we'll see that actually David still has a few more wars to win uh, to secure Israel's borders against her enemies. Peace, prosperity, national security, they've begun, uh, but they're not that They're not there for everyone yet. And so God is saying, I don't want to live like a king while my people are still in need. It's not yet time for a temple. That's That's the incarnational principle. God lives like his people live. And I think there's a little bit of a sting in this to David. After all, David is very happy to settle down in his palace and live like a king. And you can sort of almost imagine that maybe the conversation could have ended at verse 7. David put back in his place, you know, kind of back to, to business as usual. But actually God keeps going. God doesn't finish there. Because God also wants David to know the relentless grace 
that he is about to pour out on David's family. And that the promises to come are a simple extension of the generosity that God has already shown him. And that's the second principle. That's the grace principle in verses 8 and 9. God reminds David that David does not do things for God. God does things for David. Have a look at verse 8. God says, you're a shepherd, I made you a king. Verse 9 I was the one who has given you victory over all of your enemies. And so also you will not build me a house, I will build you a house. David does not do things for God, God does things for David. Now why why is this kind of important? Why is God so insistent upon grace here? And the truth is, it's because there's a very long history of kings in the ancient world building temples to their gods and in doing so they actually made a deal with their god uh, so for example you could you could look these up in the history books or you know quicker yet just google them but you know just a few examples uh, in 2100 bc ur uh, built a temple to his god enlil uh, thutmoses iii a pharaoh of egypt built a huge temple to amun ra in 1500 bc a hundred years later amenhotep extended it Eshkadon of Assyria built a temple to Asher in 700 BC. And in each case, in each one of these instances, it was a, a matter of quid pro quo. Uh, something for something. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Uh, they made deals with their gods. They made covenants with their god that had conditions attached to them. And the deal was, I will build you a temple. I will make your name famous. And, and everyone will see how great you are and they'll come up and worship you. And in return... Uh, You will give me victory over my enemies, you will protect me, and you will increase my power. You kind of get the picture. But God says to David, I'm not a God like all the other gods. All religions are not alike. All religions are not different ways to the same God. I am absolutely different from all the other gods. And so my covenant with you will be one of unconditional divine blessing. This is not about what you can do for me, it's about what I can do for you. And I expect and I even insist on nothing in return. Now, David's probably at this point kind of thinking, God, no, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to make a deal with you or anything like that. I'm not trying to treat you like the other gods of this world. But God's response is, I don't care. There's not even going to be a hint of it. I am grace upon grace. I am blessing upon blessing. I am love and I will show everyone that through you. If I let you build me a house, then people, even perhaps even you, might be tempted to think that I am like all the other gods. And if that were to happen, then you would be useless to me as my representative, as my king and as the the one who tells the whole world of my goodness and my grace. You see what God is doing? It's so important that we grasp this. The way that God deals with us is not only completely different to the way that all other religions work, it's actually utterly opposed to them. And it's true for David and it is true for us. We do not do things for God. God does things for us. And if any of us think that we can build an identity where our actions or our accomplishments or our achievements are greater than the grace and the generosity that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ 
then our ability to represent God and his goodness and his grace will be utterly ruined. If our salvation was earned, then our God would be no different from the gods of our world. But if our salvation is by grace through faith, a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Only then can we show the world just how great our God is, that he would save such undeserving sinners as each one of us are. We do not do things for God. God does things for us. And so God says to David, no, you will not build a house I will build you a house because of the incarnational principle and because of the grace principle. So what does God say yes to? Let's go on to to point number two, shall we? What what does God say yes to? Uh, Because God does go on to make some amazing promises to David. And in fact, he makes three promises in particular in this chapter. He makes a promise of a name, He makes a promise of land and he makes a promise of descendants. So first of all, God will make David's name great in verse 9. Like one of the the names of one of the greatest men in all the earth. David thought that he was going to make God famous by building him a, a grand temple. But God turns the tables on him and says, no, no, you will not make me famous. I will make you famous. Your name will be remembered amongst all the greatest names of the earth. And that's true. David's been dead for 3,000 years. And here we are, talking about him, remembering him, uh, speaking about how significant he is in the whole history of our world. Secondly, then, David thought that he was going to make a home for God. But it would be God who would be the homemaker. God who would make a home for all Israel in verses 10 and 11. A place for them to live and a place for them to live forever. Uh, We've already touched on this. David thought that he was already enjoying rest and all the blessings of God, but God's reply suggests that David didn't even know the half of it. Rest was still to come. There was a a sense of security and a sense of blessing that was yet to be tasted by God's people. And that would far outstrip anything that they had experienced so far. And that all these promises, they were for the whole nation. That when the king is glorified, the people prosper. And so these blessings yet to come would not just be for David and for his family, but actually they would flow out from the house of David like a river that would wet the feet of all of God's people. But thirdly, God also promises for David a house. And this is where the the, the pun kind of comes into play. And again, he turns the table on David. Uh, And if David hadn't got the point before, I'm sure he got it now. David began the chapter musing him to himself that I'll build God a house, I'll build God a temple. But that honour, says God in verse 13, will be left to David's son. Instead, God plays on that word house and says, no, no, I will build you a house, not a a building, but instead I will build you a dynasty, I will build you a, a great family. Uh, God would would build a family that would actually, it would continue and it would go on, a long and prosperous dynasty. Name, land and descendants, they were the three promises that God made to David. 
Now, astute Bible readers here will kind of go, I've heard those before. Every Sunday school teacher in the room is going, I've, I've heard those three things before. And right you are, you have. They're exactly the same promises that God made to Abraham, to David's ancestor. And so we're actually meant to hear here a very clear echo of those promises. In fact, these are the same three promises that God keeps making to God's people again and again and again and again. And these are just spelled out more fully than they ever have been before up to this point. And then God kind of keeps going. In verses 12 to 16, he, he goes on to spell out fully what these promises really are, actually in ways that Abraham and those who came before David never would have imagined. Because that's where God says to David, I'm going to so commit myself to you and to your family that not even death, sin or time will stop me from keeping these promises. Not even death, in verses 12 to 13. Death will not stop my commitment to you. When you die, I will keep my promise. A son will come from you and he will build the temple. Death will not stop God from keeping these promises to David. But nor will sin, says God in verses 14 and 15. Some of David's descendants, including Solomon, the one who would build the temple, some of them will sin. Some of them will be downright wicked. And even though God might discipline them, he will not take away his love. Discipline, like any good father, is necessary. But God will be a father who loves them. And he will never stop loving the family of David. Death will not stop these promises. Sin will not stop these promises. But most surprising of all, neither will time. Have a look at verse 16. Uh, Verse 16, it almost feels like a little bit of a rhetorical flourish that God might add. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But actually, God means it. God means it. The living God who is eternal is saying to David, these promises will last as long as I do. Death, sin, time. None of them will stop God's commitment to the house of David. The throne of David will be established forever. And there will always be a son of David ruling over God's people. That's the amazing promise of God to David in this chapter. So how does David respond? How does David respond to the no and to the amazing yes of these incredible promises that God makes to him? And I think it's worth reminding ourselves that David could have responded badly. After all, uh, David has just been told no. David has just been told, no, you are not going to get to do what it is that you want to do. No, I'm not going to let you make a deal with me. Even if that's not something you think you're doing, you're not going to make any deal with me. We're not going to be like any of those other gods. No, your plan for your life and my plan for your life, actually, they're going to be two very different things. And that is a hard thing to hear when God says it to us. And yet God does say it to each and every one of us. There's a point in all our lives, perhaps you've experienced it already, but even if you haven't, one day you will, where you will realise that God's plan for your life 
is very different from your plan for your life. And how you respond to God at that moment will dictate the rest of your relationship with God. And so it will determine your eternity. But David has also just been told something else that could easily be heard as bad news. David has also been told someone else, your son, will be greater than you. Someone else, your son, will, they will the one who will be forever known as the temple builder, not you. And I can't help but be reminded that the last king of Israel, King Saul, he reacted very poorly when he was told that the king who would come after him would be greater than him. In fact, he spent the next two decades or so hunting David and trying to kill him. Because he was filled with pride and jealousy when he heard that sort of a message. But how does David respond? And I've got one word for it. Awe. Awe. That's my one word summary of verses 18 to 29. David is in awe of what God has promised him. Uh, Chapter 7 verse, verse 18. Have a look at verse 18 then. Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servants. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is from me, human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. This is David, the great poet, the great songwriter of Israel, speechless at these incredible promises that God has made. The promises of God have left David awestruck. And yet he does kind of summon up the courage to say one more thing down in verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you're promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Don't do it for me, David says. Do it for you. Do it for your name. Do it so that you will be famous. These very promises have reminded David that when a king is glorified, his people prosper. And so David prays that God, his king, would be glorified. And there is something so very right about all of this, isn't there? This is a reminder to us that sometimes God does say no to us because he has something even better planned for us. And David has the humility, and it does require humility to realize this. And so in the midst of all of this awe, in the midst of everything that's going on in this chapter, there is this very great trust that David has in God. That David knows God will truly keep these promises. But that was a trust that would be sorely tested. The line that connects these promises to their fulfillment is not a straight one. Solomon, David's son, did indeed build the temple. But in time, David's kingdom was destroyed. 
Solomon's foolishness and his sin divided Israel into two kingdoms, each of which was devastated by an enemy. First the Assyrians and then secondly the Babylonians who sacked and destroyed the house of the Lord that Solomon built. And yet all this was the Lord's doing because the kings, including the descendants of David and all of the people, sinned and turned their hearts against God. And these were terrible tragedies and they were a mighty challenge to those who trusted in God's promises to David. And yet throughout all of the decline and the destruction of David's kingdom, there were still prophets who continued to insist that God's promises here in 2 Samuel remained. And finally, after centuries of waiting, one finally came. One who was a son of David, and yet one who was also greater than David. And the very first line of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, introduces to us Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the inheritor of all their promises. And it's like the gospel writers are trying to say to us, you cannot understand Jesus, you cannot understand who he is, you cannot understand what he has come to do, unless you understand David and God's commitment to David's family, because he is the son of David. Here is the one, and now neither death nor sin nor time will stop God from keeping those promises. Not death, because Jesus is the one who has triumphed over death by his resurrection from the dead. Not even death can hold Jesus. And not sin either, because Jesus is the one who defeats sin. He is our king who was sacrificed on a cross so that he could defeat not just sin for himself, but sin for all of his people. And even time cannot wear Jesus down, because he is the eternal son of God who gives now eternal life to all his people. He is the son of David, who rules forever. And Jesus is the incarnational principle and the grace principle all in one. Jesus lives as his people live. He suffers as his people suffer. Jesus truly did become become one of us. In fact, John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that he tabernacled amongst us and by his grace and his generosity towards us he suffered the one thing that we cannot suffer without being destroyed he suffered death under the judgment of God so that by his death we might receive forgiveness and cleansing and hope and salvation Incarnation and grace, defeating death, sin and time. Jesus draws it all together. And so when they looked at Jesus as as that little baby lying there in the manger and they said, he is the son of David, they didn't just mean that he was a descendant of David. They meant here is the son of David. Here is God's forever king. Here is the one who will defeat death and sin and time for us. Here is the one in whom a whole universe of God's glory rests. 
And he's come to be one of us. And he's come to show us grace. Here is the one in whom all the purposes of of God will reach their final end. My friend, the, the eternal reign of the son of David has begun. And he is the one who will establish his people and plant them so that they will never be afflicted, never be disturbed, but will only ever enjoy peace and blessing and security forever. And as promised, this son of David will build and is building a house for God. Not a, not a physical building, not a temple in Jerusalem, but a people, a church, a spiritual building. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone upon which a great spiritual house is being built. A spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. And this building, well, the temple that David desired to build and even the temple that Solomon did build is just a mere shadow of the glory of this building that Jesus is doing. Are you part of this temple? Are you part of this kingdom? Are you part of these promises? Are you one of these people? Because if not, you should be. And if not, you can be. And Jesus says, it's easy. All you need to do is believe. All you need to do is trust me. All you need to do is let me show in you That you do nothing for me, but I do everything for you. And I have done everything for you. That's all you need to do. It's the easiest thing in the world. But it's also the hardest thing in the world. Because we must swallow our pride. And we must admit that we don't deserve the grace that Jesus has shown us. And nor can we ever earn it. And if you are part of all of this, as I know so many of you here are, if you are part of this, are you in awe at what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ? This is the most important thing that God is doing in all of his universe. And we are part of it. Even this little gathering now, even this this little collection of us here on on a Sunday night in Shenton Park, We are a little taste of what it will be like to be with the Lord Jesus forever. David saw only the very beginnings of this and he was awestruck. We have seen so much more and yet the best is yet to come. We will see it all. We will see Jesus when he returns. We will see him face to face and we will go to be with him forever. Doesn't that just want to make you say, like David said, who am I that you have brought me this far? How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. How can we not be in awe of what God has done for us in Jesus? 
An old hymn came to mind when I was preparing this week. Let me read you a verse. All glory, praise and honour to you, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. You are the King of Israel and David's royal son. Now in the Lord's name coming, the King and Blessed One. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the one in whom all these promises are fulfilled. We thank you that you are a God who shows us grace, that we do not do things for you, but you have done for us great and marvellous things in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we say, along with David, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you.